and science advisor Matt Moniz are both along for the ride as well. And what a show we have for you tonight. You know, for, for the past, oh, I don't know, seven or so months now, we've been on the air here with Spooky South Coast, bringing you all kinds of interesting guests in the paranormal field. One thing we've never really explained, I mean, we talk about all the scientific measurements you can use to determine the presence of ghosts or spirits or whatever you want to call them, but we've never really gotten into the breakdown of how that all works. We've touched upon it here and there, but we've generally gone on the assumption that most of the people that listen to this program have an affinity for the paranormal, and so therefore they are up to date a bit on some of the ghost hunting techniques and the science behind ghost hunting. Well, as we've come to realize, uh, that might not actually be the case. So this week we're going to take a step back a little bit, and with our special guest, Dr. Ron Millione, who is the gadget guy for TAPS, the Atlantic Paranormal Society, you know them from the television show Ghost Hunters, we are going to talk to him about the science of ghost hunting, exactly what it is that makes it so that uh, paranormal investigators can use this equipment to try and determine the presence of phenomena. So we'll get into why uh, EMF uh, readings are taken, why temperature readings are taken. We'll talk about all that stuff. And uh, also in the second hour, we will talk to David Chastain, who is part of the, let me make sure I say this right, the Extrico Group. And what they do is uh, they offer some interesting services for people who are paranormal investigators. Uh, he, he offers uh, an interview service where... If you are conducting an investigation of a resident, say, and you want a professional interviewer to ask all the right questions to make up a profile, they'll offer that service for you. But one of the other things that he does is he puts up articles about the paranormal on his website, extricogroup.com. That's E-X-T-R-I-C-O group.com. And he had a very interesting article in May about possibly tying together all the scientific equipment into one program, one interface for investigators to use. It was mentioned last week on the TAPS Power Radio podcast, which, you know, A-plus, I highly recommend it, uh, podcastalley.com, search for TAPS. You'll find their radio show there. You'll also find our radio show there as well uh, because, uh, you know, we've had a lot of people that say, I want to listen to the MP3, but I don't have iTunes. You know, some people can't get their MP3 players to sync up with iTunes because it's a, a competing brand to the iPod. So we've solved that problem for you. Uh, through websites like podcastalley.com, podcast.net, and podcast.com, you can now get Spooky South Coast. Just search for, our, for the name of our program, search for Ghost, search for Paranormal, type all that stuff in, you'll find our show. So, but uh, anyway, so we will have David Chastain on in the second hour, and we will get Ron Millione's point of view on the program that David is suggesting. And of course, uh, we always welcome your phone calls, your thoughts, your questions, your theories, your stories. Your personal experiences, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500, and 
and on our message board at SpookySouthCoast.com. So, uh, unfortunately, our, our good friend and Eagles Angel uh, is otherwise, uh, otherwise, uh, well, she's going out with the girls tonight. She's taking a much-deserved night off, so there won't be a live chat room in the Spirit Society or the Spirited Society websites, but you can post your questions up there. The silent assassin, Matt Costa, is ready to take your questions, and we will pose them to both Ron and David. Now... Before we get into the interviews, we just want to touch upon a couple of events that happened last night. Of course, last week we had Keith Johnson in the studio with us to talk about New England Vampire Legends. He was kind enough to bless the studio for us. I haven't checked in with some of the other hosts here at WBSM to find out what kind of effect that had on their programs. But uh, so far, so good here. Right, Matt? So far? No problem? So far, so good. Okay. So, uh, and Matt Moniz, you went to Keith Johnson's ghost hunting class at South Coast Learning, and uh, your second time taking the course, but, you know, you're going there to represent us and to meet some of these people that are having these experiences to let them know that we're here, and to show our support for Keith and Nier and what it is that they do. Just, uh, how was the class this time around? How was the audience? Uh... Keith is always uh, on, on his game. He knows how to put forth the information and he does it in such a way that people can easily pick it up, easily follow it. He is not afraid to let people ask questions if they have any, if he's going over something, which is a sign of a good teacher. You know, a good teacher will allow a person who is not following to be able to catch up. Mm-hmm. And that that is a good sign. Uh, he covers all of the equipment what it does, how it's used, why it works, and what it's looking for. A lot of the stuff of what we'll be talking about tonight right. with Ron Milion. It, with Ron, we'll, getting, we'll probably be getting into more technical details mm-hmm. of the it. The nuts but, and bolts of it, literally. Yeah, quite literally. Uh, but Keith also goes into what type of hauntings there are, the histories of hauntings, and what is possibly behind them, covering all of the different uh, forms of you know, uh, whether it be a residual haunting or a, an intelligent haunting, the differences between the two. Uh, and he does it in such a way that people can understand it. And he starts off in layman's terms and then slowly progresses into more technical terms, but it, it's easy for people to follow. They, they get the idea. And then, of course, the evidence that comes at the end of the lecture uh, is what is really intriguing. Uh I've seen people walk into his class, you know, total skeptics, and walk out uh, rethinking their points of view. Yeah. And and you shared some of the evidence that we had collected, both the the, the footage that you captured at Waverly Hills and some of our EVPs. Uh, what was the reaction of the class to that stuff? Uh, they wanted to see it over and over again, uh, mainly because it was something that they could see in motion mm-hmm. a lot of uh photographs exist of ghosts or or things like that are purported to be ghosts this is something that actually moves uh not too often do you get a chance to actually videotape a ghost but there are videos out there of them but um they were quite fascinated with that and and of course uh, all that footage uh and some digital stills from that footage and all of our evp evidence is all available on our website, SpookySouthCoast.com. Go to the message board, click on Share Your Evidence. You'll find uh, all that stuff. So uh, I do believe we have a call on the line, so uh, let's go to the phones. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How are you? Good. How are you? All right. Good. I could just get a, qu- a quick question. Sure. Um, is it unusual um, like to see uh, anything uh, in a broad daylight 
I mean, not at all. No, I mean the theory is that a lot of paranormal activity takes place at night, not because that's when it's happening, mm-hmm. but because that's when it's easier to observe it. Right. Uh, there's less commotion that goes on during the day. You know, less stress on your eyes from sunlight and from you know various different factors. Right. And uh, I mean, it's just quieter. It's more relaxed. Right. Generally, that's when people are at. A rest state, and you mm-hmm. you tend to more observe what's going on around you. With the during the daytime, you're you know going to the grocery store, you're doing work, you know your mind is occupied. But but it's not unheard of at all. I mean, yeah, there's, there's plenty of broad daylight encounters. Did you have one yourself? Yeah, my incident. I was I was a kid, and um, <clears throat> actually I'm I still I'm still at the same house I was living then, and I was next door in the yard, and uh, I was only even in it, and uh, I heard. It was strange. I was actually I was stealing grapes, so <laughs> but, but uh, I heard something something behind me. It was like a whistling, and I turned around, and about three feet from me was I remember the elderly woman that lived in the house, and she was by no means mysterious when she was alive. I mean, she was just old, and I saw her right in front of me, and it was like it was weird. It was like a a small tornado around her. And she wasn't looking at me. Her eyes were looking down, mm-hmm. and it was about I'd say about yeah, two, three feet from me. And I just was just standing there in shock, looking. And that's when I decided to run. And um, I finally stopped running about halfway down the block. My friends and they they knew something was up because I looked down and I had stepped on a picket fence, and the, and the nail was through my foot. So they knew something scared me, and I didn't say anything though. I just mm-hmm. said, well. I was scared because I got stabbed with, uh, you know, I stepped on the picket. But I stepped on the picket when I was trying right, to run from running, yeah. whatever that, you know. I just always, I never knew what was up. I never saw it again. Uh, I was never afraid. You know, I live next door to it. Well, you know, where am I going to go? So I never, you know, I just I just thought, it was, I never forgot it. And I just thought it was strange. I mean, she was never uh, one to say, hey, yeah, you know, she's a witch or she's mm-hmm. evil or well, you know, we we don't really pick when the paranormal is going to happen to us. It, it, it decides when it's going to happen. Yeah, and it just, I mean, I heard that noise, and it was actually a whistling, and I just turned around, and there she was. There she was. I knew it actually was right in front of a tree. And, uh, I, I mean, it was enough that I know, you know, something I never forgot. And I, I never could figure it out why, and it just... I knew I was not doing good. I was stealing grapes, but uh, <laughs> you know, might, I mean, it might be tied into that. It just—I uh, mean, she used to. Matter of fact, before she had died, I mean, years before that, she always she'd always give me them, you know, when they were ripe, and uh, just was I something I never forgot. It was just something strange, and said, "Well, and I'm never going to figure it out." And I mean, the place wasn't mysterious. Mm-hmm. I mean, I lived next door to it all my life. Like I said, I still do. And it was never something, oh, yeah, you see this, you hear that. Never, nothing. Oh, you never know when it's going to happen. Well, we thank you for uh, sharing your story with us. No problem. And uh, thank you for listening. Yeah, I love you. I love the show. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And, and you have a good night. You too. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, like like I was saying, you can't decide when this stuff's going to happen to you as much as some people would like to. Uh, it's just these things come and they go... When, those win- when you're looking for them, it yeah, doesn't happen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when the window opens, it opens. Yeah, you, you don't open the window, it opens for you. So, 
it's not uncommon for stuff to happen during the daytime. It's harder to have daytime experiences, like you said, because of the hustle and bustle of the daytime. And if you're going to be researching ghosts and you're going to be investigating ghosts, it's really hard to find anything during the day if you're looking for hard scientific evidence because... You know, in the daytime, it's hard to shut off everything that shoots out an electromagnetic field. Uh, it's hard to shoot, shut down all the electricity. Uh, there's just, it's such a different atmosphere during the daytime than it is at night. And I, I think at night, I mean, I'm not a big uh, aura energy guy myself. Like, I believe in it, but I don't feel it, is what I'm saying. Like, I, I'm not sensitive to it. But uh, my own general feelings, I think at night, the air is just charged differently. Uh, it seems more like. The possibility is there more, and if it's if if you are a believer in the paranormal, you're going to be thinking things are going to happen to you at night more frequently than during the day. So, but we thank that caller for sharing his experiences. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side, we will have Dr. Ron Millione, the gadget guy for the Atlantic Paranormal Society. He will be talking with us about the science of ghost hunting. Later on, joining in the conversation will be David Chastain, who has some interesting ideas on the science of ghost hunting. And uh, also later on, we'll touch on the week in weird. we got some uh, pretty good stories and an obituary uh, that we have to read for a radio favorite of uh, paranormal fans all over Massachusetts growing up. So unfortunately, we won't be able to get him as a guest. Well, maybe. Maybe. I mean, we do we do talk about ghosts, so uh, maybe if uh, if he's listening, he can call in. You can call in, 508-996-0500. 508-291-0500. Maybe you took Keith Johnson's class last night. You'd like to share your opinions of it. Maybe you were at the Capers Open Meeting discussing UFOs with Keith Kessner. Uh, we'll talk to Matt Costa about that a little bit later on. So, and, and we welcome your calls all night long. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Don't look now, but spooky South Coast is creeping up behind you right after this. Crystal Expectations is an extraordinary experience. Crystal Expectations has books, jewelry, candles, incense, oils, CDs, tarot decks, religious and fantasy statues, and cultural items from around the world. Crystal Expectations offers a wide variety of services, including Reiki, Kuan Yin, magnified healing, and meditation. Do you want to find out the influences in your life and what the future holds for you? Call to schedule a tarot or Hindu astrology reading. Crystal Expectations knowledgeable staff has over 40 years experience in a wide variety of spiritual disciplines. They can provide instruction in spiritual cleansing for yourself and techniques to reduce negative influences in your life. Crystal Expectations is located at 854 Brock Avenue in New Bedford, serving those interested in the paranormal and spiritual for over 18 years. 508-990-7898 or visit crystalexpectations.net. You can also email them at crystalx at verizon.net. Spooky South Coast here on WBSM. Phone lines are open throughout the show, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. And, of course, you don't have to be listening to the show live to be able to call in. We're all over the place. So uh, if, if you're listening to the show via podcast after the time that it happened, don't be shy. 10 to midnight, Eastern Standard Time, we're here. Call us anytime. And on the line right now, we have... 
Dr. Ron Millione. He is the gadget guy for TAPS. Uh, you've probably seen him in a couple episodes of Ghost Hunters. Uh, he makes all the different uh, equipment that they use. He's, he's constantly uh, giving them new and improved ideas on how to hunt for ghosts, and we're going to talk to him about the science behind that. Uh, good evening, Ron. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. How are you doing tonight? Hey, Tim. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on tonight. And, of course, uh, we have our own science advisor here in the studio, Matt Moniz, uh, who you had a chance to talk to. He's going to pick your brain as well because I, I know he's very excited about talking to you. Oh, yeah, he can pick all he wants. <laughs> How's it going, Ron? He'll keep, yeah, picking, going? He'll, he'll keep picking until there's nothing left, Ron. Oh, Trust oh me. there's a lot to pick then. No. <laughs> it's all right. I'm quite hungry. So now uh, why don't we talk a little bit about uh, about your your qualifications, your uh, educational experience. You have uh, a, B, a Bachelor's of Science in Electrical Engineering, a Master's, and a Ph.D. in Electrical Engineering. Yeah, that's correct. Um, been, uh, that was back in 1977, 1978, uh, not oh, saying my age. It still counts. But, uh, down at the um, City College of New York, great great. Learning institution, great labs, and old great teachers, professors back then, and um, since then, quite a bit of um, uh, R and D or research and development experience uh, through from commercial to um, defense, which I'm presently doing right now. So, um, uh, doing uh, some DoD stuff. Very interesting. Now, when you were a student, was the paranormal uh, something you were interested in? Something that you were looking toward for the future? Well, yeah, all the time. The reason why, I was always fascinated by the UFO phenomena and um, wanted to know what's happening, why is this thing going on, why you have so many thousands of people. And in the Air Force, especially the Air Force Project Blue Book, was so active in it until 1969, and they had a full full professor, uh, leader in the, the country in astrophysics, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, that was in charge of Project Blue Book. So if you got the military... Pentagon and everyone else behind it to find out what's going on. Um, there was something to it, to this you know phenomenology. So that's what got me interested. I say there's got to be a way. This besides people's observation, um, some other maybe technical way to uh, record or prove or disprove that uh, what they're seeing is you know is it uh, military uh, stealth uh, experimentation. Uh, or is it um, interdimensional, you know, uh, intelligence from somewhere else? And now, when you started uh, going to school for this stuff and, and, and talking to people about your ideas, what did they think? Well, you get, you know, you got the uh, straight. I call the straight-on academic type of people that they're they're there's two facets to it. There's is two guys. It's the two-person team. One, the per- first-person team is the uh, more the theoretical. They'll just like Einstein. He'll just let's just throw a bunch of um, you know some uh, advanced equations on there. Let's play with some Dell operators and uh, uh, Green's theorem, all this stuff. And then there's the guys on my side, like myself, that say, "Well, you know, enough of the abstract stuff. Let's let's really see uh, how much you can really push physics to the limit." Like this. You know, putting stuff together and see if it obeys some of the, um, you know, the background of what these uh, uh, theorists are saying. And sometimes there is no in between that sometimes there is no theoretical explanation to some things that you see or feel or witness on a practical side. And it seems like uh, these days as the... as. I guess, you know, TAPS has had a big part of this uh, with Ghost Hunters becoming such a sensation. But there is definitely more of a push toward the 
evidence to be able to back up anything paranormal. Well, I mean, th that's the whole thing. The whole thing is, to me, in my, in my situation, is, you know, if someone says, look, I saw a, a, a UFO land, three, three beans came out, uh, and they put me in suspended animation for two hours, then they took off, and that was it. I want to know, I would want to know is, okay, well, what's, where's the proof? Where's the actual data? In other words, was there, you know, did they leave a, a pod print on the ground? Was there any uh, material left? Was there, was there something? So evidence is, or data, real hardcore data is really key. Because then what you could do is you could, you could model it, like put through some kind of modeling algorithm mm -hmm. and say, well, Here's an explanation. Well, it could be the m most probable. It might be something that it's you know it's unknown to our present laws of physics and scientists, or or something that says, well, it, it no, it 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 belongs to this classification, and it was and it was misjudged or misrepresentative. So the day without data, hardcore data, it's this you know it's your word against my word. In in the paranormal communities, that's usually the problem. So the more evidence you have of data that's stored data, then you can really massage it. And with the current new technology, you can really now take it by, a, call it a data bit, bit by bit, and you could actually extract and really analyze the data. Back then, back in the 40s and 50s and 60s, which is old traditional basic analog systems, it's almost impossible to really quantify, you know, what, what was any data that, if there was any data captured at all. So the uh, thing of today is, with all the uh, all the digital technology, now you got a lot more people that have a lot more good data to capture because of the technology supporting it. And then you have, don't forget, the, the backbone of the Internet exchanges data in real time. Mm -hmm. which now makes people involved, virtually involved, and throws their comments in. I forget, years ago, when you got a bunch of, if you got some kind of collective data, say analog data, I have to ship it to you, to you, you're a leading university physicist, and say, you know, there was some burn marks from some, let's say, call it a flying saucer. By the time you get it, it might be one, two, two weeks, may get lost in the mail, or if you do get it, then you get back to me. You see this really lag of communications back and forth. So it eventually, it's, you know, you have all these buffers of communication. And sometimes, you know, it, you kind of get, eh, the heck with it. You know, it's just it's taking, I'm not, the guy didn't send me the data. But today, with the Internet, electronically, you could transfer stuff in real time. And, plus, we get a lot more storage capability. We have portable devices that could store, I mean, warehouses of the old beginning relay uh, <clears throat> computer systems, especially like the old beginning IBM mainframes. Mm -hmm. and, and the interesting thing, too, is with the, uh, the availability of all this information through the Internet, more and more people will go to it because it's something you can do in your own home. It's something you can do in private. If you don't feel comfortable letting people know that you're interested in the paranormal, you can look into it on your own time with, with nobody else, you know. It's, it's the exchange of information in real time. I mean, if you think about it, if you wind the clock back, I'm, and I'm talking 1995 now, 1995 from prior to that, there was no Internet savvy anybody because it was just the, um, the beginning, um, just... You know, when Windows was trying to be the most basic stabilized operating system at that point, no one, no one had any idea of this stuff. Only us advanced geeks at the time had 
at, the, at that time, um, 1,200 board modems to go to some private, we call bulletin board service. So now, since everybody's really wired and they have, a, like, a virtual information center, um, it's great. Otherwise, you have to go to a library, see if you could find anything that pertains to that subject, which are just written books and, docu- you know, some documentation, maybe some uh, trade magazines. And it's very slow, very slow progressing stuff. So to look up one research content of something could take you a week. You know, get to the place. All the book is uh, being rented out. And we'll be back three weeks later. And you see all this, you know, this whole slowness of exchange of data. Now you're going to see a lot real rapid and exchange of data because of the Internet. And there's tremendous amount of groups that are exploding of being more and more involved and saying, well, now, now we got, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of groups, both domestic and international, um, and a lot of high-profile scientists now, uh, everyone's getting involved because of, the, because of instant data and exchange so quick, and plus the technology. So the technology is the, you know, don't forget, people have no idea of back in the 60s that, you know, stuff ran on vacuum tubes, and you talk to somebody today, they go, what is a vacuum tube? What is that, you know, what are you talking about, a vacuum tube? And there's no concept about that. But, I mean, that's how systems were being driven back then. But then you're talking, you know, very, very um, uh, limited amount of information storage or capacity. So what I've been involving in that uh, area, you know, like, say, back, back when I was a kid in the 60s about um, this whole UFO stuff, and why did it start in the 40s? I mean, there was stuff in the 30s, but the 40s was the breakout. In other words, the, the, epi, uh, the kind of like the, called the ground zero of the sightings. Yeah, there had to be, Ken some, Arnold. There had to be some sort of event at that time. You right, know. Ken, Ken Arnold, Arnold in, uh, when he was over um, in Mount Rainier in Washington State, said he saw like seven or eight these discs flying. Now, you got a, you got a FAA-certified pilot whose main job when he's in the air is observation. I mean, that's what he's, that's what he's trained for. So he's using his, his, you know, observation, and he sees totally different aerodynamic disc flying around. And like, well, what is this? I don't have any information from my FAA control local tower. So where do these things come from? Look at the speed that they're going at. Um, now, if the military is playing around at that time, um, they're violating airspace against a civilian aircraft because they're putting him in, in, in kind of danger because the guy, they're not identifying who they are. There's no communications. And the thing is going at ex- uh, astronomical speeds compared to what he was flying at. So, you know, what's the logic or the reasoning behind that? And uh, th- that, that's what got my curiosity. And still have a lot of people curious to this day. Some people spend all their lives in one incident. I mean, I know a couple of guys, I'm sure you know, of Kettsburg in Pennsylvania, that UFO incident. Um, there's a guy that spent the last 30 years of his life just investigating that one incident. Like, this was real, it happened here. And the military came in, closed it right up, sealed it, and sheltered this thing out, put it out, uh, you know, transported it out. And uh, what's the logic behind it? Oh, if it's a Russian satellite, big deal. I mean, what's so secret about it? You know? Exactly, yeah. I mean, we, our friend Peter Robbins has spent, what, 25-plus years uh, just researching the Benwaters case. I, yeah, I helped Peter work on it for the, for at least 10 years of it. I did the scientific analysis on the soil of, of that case. And yeah. if it could be easily yeah. explained, it would have been by now. Uh, 
Well, what I got for results still has me baffled and other uh, colleagues of mine baffled. So There you go. And uh, there's so many of these cases uh, that have the Roswell incident is a tremendous, I mean, you know, um, ground-shaking sh- uh, uh, situation that happened and with 300-plus witnesses and other third parties. It's just, come on, man. Uh, you know, there, there is no, there's no way that uh, you got some kind of plain old um, surveillance balloon that crashed in the middle of some uh, ranch that uh, has all the hype up like that. I mean, it's setting them, setting them up every day in the middle of town in Roswell that you know, kids knew what they were. And... Um, and then you got these, you know, big military brass saying, "Oh, no, this ain't no weather balloon that crashed." And they they, they, they release the information, and then the next day they cover it up uh, yeah. because of national security. They go, "Uh oh, this is uh, uh, I think we said the wrong thing, uh, UFO." <laughs> well, that's what they get for you know. They first they tried to come out with what they had, then they had to try and backpedal because that's right. certain people Back- wanted to keep the material. Secret. Yeah, you have to. If you're going to have a cover up, you have to have the cover up in place from the start. Right. <laughs> now, how did you make the transition into uh, researching ghosts, and and then more specifically, how did you get uh, connected with Taps? Well, with the ghost stuff is, um, it, you know, it always fascinated fascinated me too. I mean, I'm, I knew there was, there's got to be some transformation from I call it this window or this domain to another domain. In other words, there's got to be there's multiple domains out there in this whole bubble of the universe. And getting getting back to your question about TAPS, they, I saw the first episode, and uh, I was actually teaching some computer technology class at night. Got home a little bit early, about 9.40. And actually, my wife goes, hey, Ron, take a look at this. And I go, why? He goes, you might be really interested. He sees a bunch of guys doing an investigation on paranormal, and they got this equipment that they're, um, you know, trying to uh, use to um, you know, get their data, and I'm going equipment. So I'm taking a look at it, and I'm going, okay. So they're using this EMF detector, and I said, well, that's kind of bizarre. I said, why is the guy got a flashlight in his right hand, looking at some like antiquated display with his left hand, and it's pitch black? I said, wait a minute. No, nah, I said, hmm. This, this, right away, my 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 kind of my computer in my head kicked in and goes. Ah, there's a better design than that. And, and the, the logic, I said, let me sleep on it. And I kind of like thought about it. Next day I said, well, I got a good solution for that. And I said, they need to have, you've got to have one hand free, especially if you're in some kind of dark place, just, just for, you know. Safety. Physical and safety reasons, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I said, if you're in pitch black, man, I said, something called light-emitting diodes. That's a technology. I mean, it's been around for quite a number of years. And they could change the interface on that unit, put a light-emitting diode system on it, and they could just look at the lights. As the light, you get more lights in, intensified, you got more active energy state right there. And I said, that's, you know, that's probably what they really should have. So I looked and I searched around, we'll search on the net, and I said, there's nothing out there at all. I said, what? I said a couple of these manufacturers, I said, I don't know what they're thinking. I said, well, let me, let me see if I can come up with a prototype or let me come up with a device that... That could display, it'll take it from that state, pump it to an ADD converter, and then I could drive an LED, uh, I call graph or bar graph array. And um, that's what I did. And I sent uh, communications to uh, Grant, and Jason called like almost the next day after that and goes, 
can you do something like that? Can you really do? I got to talk to you about that. I said, man. I said, let me sit down. We could sit sit down. I said, let me see what else uh, that you got. And I said, what else we could I could improvise. And plus, you know, this probably is a lot of new tool sets that you guys never thought of that we could you know add to this um, you know for your investigation kit out there to get you at least more closer to either bunk or debunk you know. Um, these uh, cases that you guys are working on. That's how it happened. Well, see, I'm looking here at the list of some of the stuff that you've created for them. Uh, portable white noise generators, portable narrow beam microwave detectors, uh, magnetic variation pulse detectors, uh, Geiger counters. Uh, you know, it's just all this stuff that uh, they can utilize to get these different readings and to show, okay, uh, if four or five different pieces of equipment are showing an anomaly, uh, then there's definitely something happening. That's it. I mean, the whole thing is science, too. There's what I call, pra- I call practical science. If you have more than one instrumentation to analyze some kind of, you know, say input, I always call it an input. In other words, let's say if you get some entity out there, it's an input. In other words, you, you got something that's, that's in an active state. Now you've got three or four different, let's say, receivers or instrumentation trying to uh, give you, even though it's giving you different type of, uh, say, readings, but uh, they're all in aid, or in other words, they're all anding together, so that there is some kind of input activity, and that's where these uh, other devices come in. Like, um, but also you mentioned before about, like, uh, I call the MVP, which we'll talk about a little bit later, this stuff that they even show on, put on the show on the air, that's got a, it's, it's, it's a really... Unique design, low cost system that a lot of the paranormal paranormal groups could definitely look and use at. And the reason why I kind of keep it the AM, the acronym close to the um, coined acronym, like EVP when I talk about electronic voice phenomena, mm-hmm. I kind of keep the acronym MVP, magnetic variation, you know, like phase. So all it is is if you got an entity, so called an entity, if it has an electromagnetic footprint, some energy. And it goes over and it distorts the magnetic area or variation we call it magnetic flux over this device in a room. I sample the, the changes, and if it's strong enough where it changes the magnetic flux after a certain um, time window, I set off an alarm, like a simple beep, you know, a beep and a light. So if the guy's in the room, all of a sudden you hear a tone and you see this little green light flashing, you got some real magnetic change in that room. What caused it? If this is you and the four, you know, walls out there, there might be something going on. Then you might have bring out the EMF detector, you know, from your uh, holster, from your gun. <laughs> and they do and, use and the might, holster too. And you might have, yeah, that's that's another, that's another thing, right? And then you got maybe an infrared camera you bring in and have that start running. So that's the whole thing. You got a kind of how much more mouse traps can you place that? Could help uh, aid an investigator. Once you can, once you can couple it all together, that's when you're you're proving something. Yeah, I forget. You, you, if you if you're chasing an unknown, <clears throat> it's very difficult to know where it's going to co- where it's going to appear, not appear, manifest is another term they use a lot. You know, and what frequency? In other words, at a whole electromagnetic spectrum, where do these things pop in and pop out? You know, the reason why most people are kind of, not naive, but kind of like um, narrow-minded about the paranormal whole whole situation, because 
what they see is what they believe. That's the term I, in, my, in my philosophy. But you can't see infrared, man. You can't see ultraviolet. You can't see x-rays. You cannot see L-band, X-band, and on and on and on. So don't tell me that it only what you see is what they, where it's supposed to lie in that spectrum. Baloney. No way. Well, uh, we don't know where they lie in. So that's why you need all these instrumentations to cross-spectrum and say, Maybe they pop in one night at ultraviolet, and the next night they pop in in an X-ray band. You don't know. Let's uh, let's back up for a second. Talk yep. a little bit about the theory here of why, uh, if spirits are present, why they would disturb these forces, why they would give off these readings. Well, um, it may be if there if, if there's a way they kind of disperse them, disperse them. Let's say themselves. Let's let's use that term and to, let's say, a sleeping or an idle state, and then all of a sudden now you come into kind of an awakening state, in other words, an attention, like uh, an intelligence, let's say. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to try to make some kind of interdimensional communication, in other words, domain A, which is where they live, to domain B, which is what you and I breathe in, live, in this living state. So maybe if they come from an idle state to an awake state, the energy gets concentrated to one, you know, to one, say, one cubic foot of that interdimension, but crosses over where we are physically are at that coordinates x and y, and um, that's where the uh, the energy or the the magnetic electromagnetic uh, field at that point in time gets gets very active. So that's that's the whole thing. I mean, you could disperse energy throughout the medium out there, and then if you bring it to one focal point. You got you know levels of instrumentation will start just going. Hey, wait a minute! We right in this way in this one area, there's, there's high levels of some kind of uh, you know energy level. Yeah, see, that's so you're coming more from like a multiverse theory behind the panel. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, absolutely. You know, absolutely. I mean, why not? I mean, again. Well, there is also the outlook too that. Uh, you know, as Einstein said, energy can't be created or destroyed, and but, Neil, but only changed. And in our physical physical death, the energy of us, the soul, the essence, the spirit, lives on and is dispersed out into the environment. And that these paranormal phenomena are just that collecting back up again. And then, mm -hmm. uh, as you're speaking, there's another theory where it's it's almost like a window into that other dimension or a crossing over from that other dimension. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, inter interdimensional portals got to have it's got to be around i mean why not there's too um, much stuff that happens that could utilize those portals for there not to be right right and you know um then everybody has you know x-ray equipment in the house in other words if every single person had an x-ray system and started scanning the skies and stuff and then look at that data they go oh man look at this there's some object that appeared here at 12 o'clock midnight you know outside my window about 60 60 uh 600 feet outside my window, going about 30 degrees up in uh, elevation. I mean, nobody has that stuff. So that's why we really don't know. You, you get maybe a handful of people that has access to equipment like that, starts researching or playing around. Um, plus, don't forget economics dictates what equipment no, um, exactly. that you have. But I think collectively, uh, as more and more... I'm not saying it's not going to be solved in the next 10 years or the next 100 years. Maybe the next couple of thousands of years with the technology at that point, maybe they'll have an exact termination of what frequency um, interdimensional domains you know, can communicate at, and they could turn it on and turn it off anytime they will. 
um, you know, from uh, we call the crossover point. Um, but that's 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 where I'm thinking. So you got to think out of the box a little bit, and you got to oh, kind of, and you got to kind of, you got to kind of really think. I mean, if you if you if you take um, a basic mathematical probability equation, and you put the input of the amount of of stars in the way the universe is, it'll come out and say there's 50,000 planets with life on it. You know, uh, almost no. In every single other galaxy, uh, it, it, it's what that's what it dictates. Mm -hmm. But people will go, oh, well, well, no, we're the only, you know, this is the only living planet in the whole universe. They don't realize how big the universe is. No, they have no idea. They, I mean, people have no comprehension of, you know, it takes it takes an average of eight eight to nine minutes of light from the sun to hit the planet. So they look at the sun, they go, oh, I got oh sunlight, you know, I got light immediately. No, no, you're looking, you're looking at nine minutes in the past when, it, when it's radiating here, lighting up your neighborhood. Uh, but see that, 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 and that's only 93 million miles away, which is like, like a walk, a walk down the block in your neighborhood. Exactly. Well, that's the problem is uh, when people try to comprehend the universe and, and whether or not there's life on other planets, they're, they're mixing ego and ignorance together, and that's a dangerous that's, combination. That's, that's the whole thing. You know what it is? I mean, I think by design... Um, where they only turn on 5% of your mind is really active, in other words, as far as um, reasoning and intelligence gathering. I think there's a reason for that. I think, I think the creator at the time said, you know, I'm only going to light up or just give 5% of the 95% of the 100% capacity. So 95% I'm going to put it in a real dormant state, which they, no one's going to tap into that hemisphere of their brain, the 5%. And, and the 5%, you can't really... You know, most people, the 5% reasoning and intelligence factor can't really, they start to go really baffled when you start to put some of these dimensions and, and distances and, and, and everything together. They go, oh, wait, no, I, I'm getting a headache is the expression. I don't understand what you're talking about. It, it, it's impossible. That's because it's, you know, just the um, intellectual limitation of the brain. And they, they prove this on and on from neurologists and studies over the years that you only use 5% of your brain capacity. So Einstein to say it's kicking at 12 to 15 percent because it, that's what they claim they measured in a in a laboratory after they had kind of did a biopsy on the guy and they say well no wonder the guy could write you know a complete theory of relativity about how the unified field theory should work at the age of 21 without even attending any uh, any advanced uh, courses in mathematics and physics because it's just kind of a natural set that he just kind of sat down and looked at the guy and said. Well, this is the way I think it should work, and and it's you know it's it's just amazing. But that's just the one unique character out of all of us billions of, of beings in, in in that situation. So what I'm saying is, on the paranormal side, you got to have you got to have it you got to have an open mind. But there is something to it when you got thousands of people reporting and they're saying, "Look, I saw I saw a person in between these other two parties." Um, and they weren't there like half a second later. And here's another thing. Um, there's so many photograph evidence of today with, with all the technology that I saw a photograph of um, two people in the party, like a birthday party, like a local Chuck E. Cheese. And there's a third person like uh, hugging the other two, but it was actually a, uh, an image of a ghost. That's incredible. And, and like, where did it come from? 
Well, I, I think as we progress as a society here technologically, uh, everybody's pretty much got a digital camera in their pocket at this point. Um, everybody, uh, whether they know how to work it or not, on their cell phone probably has a, a digital voice recorder as well. So we, we basically have uh, some basic semblance of ghost hunting equipment on us at all times. That's right. I mean, I'll, I'll say out to the audience, anyone out there, you, you take to some real straight, you know, low-cost uh, there's a recorder, get it from your local, you know, consumer electronics place. Go to a quiet area, to a cemetery, put it on for 30 minutes, come back, <laughs> play it back. And let's see if you pick anything up within the 30 minutes. We're laughing because uh, every time we go, there's this one local cemetery, and every time we go with those, you know, $30 digital recorders from Walmart, okay, we capture something. Three, uh, three, uh, well, I'll, I'll let Matt Mooney's explain uh, last time we went. Well, Ron, we, yeah, good, Matt. <laughs> we picked up something that was actually pretty interesting. We picked up the same EVP on three separate recorders, two digital and one analog. On an analog, too? Yes. All three, all three recorders picked up the same EVP. And that's interesting now to see how the analog system... You know, which you know has a lot more, um, it's a lot more error prone um, because of just the analog and the mechanics behind it. That picks up the same track as the as the digital uh, recorder systems at the same time uh, at this so-called cemetery that you guys at. And let me tell you, mo- most kids or teenagers or stuff like that, the, you know, unless it's around this, you know, this the area or the um, Halloween. You know, holiday. They're not going to spend their Saturday, Sunday, Friday night, especially in the summertime, hanging out in some cemetery. And go. These guys are coming in, and, and let's let's fool them with EVPs. Yeah, exactly. It ain't going to happen. So where 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 is that coming from? So you guys got some kind of channel capture somehow, and that's that's the intriguing part, right? Like, where did it come from? What and they and it and it. In parallel, it recorded to three different systems at the same time, and, and it was intelligent. It was responding it was, to a question. Oh, it's a, that's mind-boggling, absolutely mind. And that's where it makes you go, "Wait a minute! This, how can we improve on this? How can we get further channeling exactly. into it?" And 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 this is what keeps the, um, I don't know, that's what keeps the excitement going between all of us and you know all thousands of people out there. To keep going, doing what they're doing on them, you know, uh, and all these professional groups are doing a great job. It's just that, uh, you know, there's there's the evidence. It's there's something that that, that, that came, and you got the data. Now, my question is, since the analog tape sounded louder, and the mm-hmm. digitals, well, one digital was set for like a super play, the other was set for like an extended play. You yeah, know how their recording bit rates are different. That's right. Um, why would the analog be louder? Is that because it is a- probably um, depending on the on the, um, uh, the sample to noise ratio or compression circuit? Also, maybe uh, maybe um, um, the filtering <clears throat> because in the, mostly in the analog systems you got low pass, high pass, or band pass filtering. Depending on what your cutoff is, in other words, we call it the cutoff frequency. It's, uh, it's a lot more. It's a lot more. The filtering on an analog system, I, uh, I say, it's a lot more. You have a lot more um, kind of better tolerance and a wider bandwidth. 
then you're doing a digital. Because digital, don't forget, is zero and one, right? Right. That's, that's all you could go. So if it's if it's in between a zero and one, most likely it'll, 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 it'll ignore it or null it out. In other words, it'll go to a zero state, which let's say a low or a, say a, we call it at the ground signal. Mm-hmm. So if it's marginal, like say 0. 0.5, I'll say, ah, just throw throw that bit out, ignore that bit. So in other words, you don't hear, you don't you don't get any 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 data. On the analog, if you're in, in between the threshold, it's going to recall that it's going to take the threshold and, and take that data. So that's why an, an analog system sometimes is better than a digital because the digital's got to make a decision. You know, if it's on a threshold, that's the whole thing. Ah, throw it out. So in the analog, it's, it doesn't discriminate. It says, oh, okay, I'm not throwing out that data or I'm not throwing that, say, that piece out. I'm going to keep that piece. So um, sometimes the analog technology is um, uh, more supportive of, I call it threshold, um, you know, data. Well, uh, I think we're going to have to uh, visit your website, uh, global-communications. Uh, sorry, global-communications-networks.com. We'll have to uh, purchase some of your equipment for sale there because uh, we we need a little bit more uh, proof than just these EVPs that we're capturing because uh, this place is very active and and uh, we'd like oh, to get some, some better. We have to take a trip up there, man. <laughs> oh, well, well, anytime. You know, anytime we, you're welcome to stay with us. We got a couch with your name on it. We. Uh, oh, that's great. <laughs> it's nearby. It's on the way to the studio, so you can come in and do, and do another show with us. And oh yeah, that'd be no, that'd be you guys are probably like four four and a half hours, five maybe five type of tra- without traffic, four hours. Well, well we're what like half an hour, forty minutes away from Taps HQ. You know, yeah. Our, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're not that far away. So. No, that's, that, yeah, that's great. Enough that we can get Keith here, but not close enough that we can get uh, Brian Hanwa here. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway. Dude, dude run the other way. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Uh, he's a busy guy. We, uh, we're coming up on the CBS News, and then on the other side, Ron, if you can stick around with us, uh, after the week in Weird, we'd like to have you join us uh, in a brief discussion with David Chastain about this program that he has in his mind uh, about tying in all this equipment and the possibility of making everything work in one interface. Absolutely. That would be uh, great. And we'll also touch upon some of the other interesting experiments that you have uh, that you've been working on, including a uh, recreation of the Philadelphia experiment. So, And, and I can hear people rushing to their uh, Internet uh, Explore right now to look that up and Google it and see what it is. And if you don't know, we'll touch upon all that uh, just in a few minutes. We're going to take a break for the CBS News. On the other side, it's the Week in Weird with uh, an obituary for one of the, I guess we could say, inspirations for Spooky South Coast for what it is that we talk about here. And uh, then we will also touch upon a couple other interesting news stories. Our resident cryptozoologist, the silent assassin, Matt Costa, will talk to you about a Bigfoot sighting. And uh, like I said, we will have David Chastain coming on to talk about his ideas. Uh, and we'll keep Ron Millione on the line to talk some more about the science of ghost hunting. So stay tuned for more Spooky South Coast. And don't forget, you can call us, 508-996-0500, First, with local news, talk, and sports, this is WBSM New Bedford, Citadel Broadcasting, AM 1420, WBSM. I'm knitting myself a hat And I'm sewing up a head to wear it on Nitbits.com 
I'm making myself some mittens. And I'm stitching my fingers together to keep them warm inside. I'm knitting myself a sweater to cover the body I'm wearing. Knitting! 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 You asked for it, you got it. And this is Spooky South Coast, Volume 2. Watching out for you. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here. Matt Costa, the silent assassin, behind the controls. Science advisor Matt Moniz behind. We need to come up with a catchy catch line for you. This, this, this is going on the T-shirts. So, and uh, of course, Ashley still anxiously awaiting her silent assassin T-shirt. We're working on some designs. Uh, and in addition to making him produce everything for the radio program, I also. I've asked the Silent Assassin to design some T-shirt designs. How's that coming? Any progress? I made a couple of designs. I'm not really too happy with what I came up with. But I'll tell you what. Uh, here's what we're going to do. Um, because there are so many people out there with design experience, uh, our good friend Carl uh, sent us some designs for possible T-shirts. I'm not too sure if he used uh, licensed images or not, if we can use them or not. So here, here's what I'm going to put out there to the spooky South Coast listening audience. There are photos online of myself, of Matt Costa, of Matt Moniz on our website, SpookySouthCoast.com. Also on our MySpace, MySpace.com slash SpookySouthCoast. You can take those images, do what you will with them. Email me if you want some more. Uh, let me know what you're looking for. Take these images, come up with some designs, see what you can do. We'll have a little bit of a contest here. Make sure that these pictures are within reason. What do you mean within reason? If they're asking for them. Oh yeah, like don't ask for don't ask for a nude shot. You know what I mean? Well, I mean you can, but I mean don't ask me for a nude shot of Matt Moniz. I won't feel comfortable emailing it to you. But uh, you can email him directly for that. Science advisor at SpookySouthCoast dot com. But you know we'll we'll do a little contest here. Maybe some of these listeners, because you know they're way better at designing the stuff than we are. Some of the stuff I've seen online. So uh, throw together some designs, throw together some ideas, and as long as you're not using licensed copyrighted stuff from other places that we would get in trouble for using, send it to us. Uh, if we like it, and if uh, if we can use it uh, for some for some products, we will do so. And uh, let's see, with our with our vast budget of um, yeah, we have no money. Uh, everything we do for the show comes out of our our pockets, uh, running the website, running the podcast, and everything. So what we'll do is we'll just uh, if you design it and you like it, we'll we'll buy you a T-shirt. We'll send it to you. I mean, that's I think that's fair enough. I mean. 
the honor. And for, of course, we'll give you full credit for making the design, and we'll be forever indebted to you. So if you want to do that, feel free. Uh, we welcome it. Just email us the designs, spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com. Uh, if you want to get us individually, uh, matt at spookysouthcoast.com for the silent assassin, uh, tim at spookysouthcoast.com for myself, and science advisor at spookysouthcoast.com for Matt Moniz. And uh, so, it, it, you know, we hate to have to beg for this, but we're just not really inclined for this kind of thing. And uh, and Matt Moniz has just offered to give up his spot on the show for whoever wins. They can uh, sit in as a guest host for a little while with us, maybe on the show. I'm just kidding, Matt. You don't have to give up your spot. So uh, there you have it. The Spooky South Coast uh, first contest there. We'll, we'll throw that out there to everybody. And uh, right now it's time for something we like to call The Week in Weird. Not much weirder than asking for free t-shirt designs, but it does get weirder than that. But we're going to start the weekend weird on a bit of a somber note. Uh, Daryl Martini ended each of his Boston radio broadcasts with the same message. It is a wise person who rules the stars, a fool who is ruled by them, over and out. And of course, uh, for years, Boston radio listeners know Daryl Martini as the Cosmic Muffin. He spiced the airwaves with his predictions for more than 30 years and served as the Bay State's official astrologer. He died Wednesday after a three-year battle with cancer at the age of 63. Of course, this information comes from the obituary uh, printed in the Boston Herald. Uh, Daryl was one of the few blonde Italian gay Republicans the world had left, said his longtime friend and co-worker at WBCN, Charles Lacquadero. He reminded me of my Aunt Vera, very cranky and curt. And uh, for those who never got the chance to hear the Cosmic Muffins astrological weather reports, they were all over the place uh, on Boston Radio, WBCN, WZLX, WCOZ, WBOS. Uh, He eventually syndicated them all over the country. Uh, When he first started doing this uh, back in the 1970s, uh, he started on the Paul Benzaquin show on Channel 7. Uh, He'd been on the David Susskind show on PBS. He'd been on 2020 on ABC. And in 1993, Governor William Weld, uh, who was a a Muffin fan for many years, proclaimed him the official astrologer for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, a factoid that would later appear as a question in the millennium edition of Trivial Pursuit. And, of course, I had, he was on my guest list, my dream guest list, when we started this program, Spooky South Coast, because I remember growing up as a kid, my dad would listen to WBCN and listen to Charles Laquadera, uh, The Big Mattress. And, of course, we're, we're seeing the call letters of another radio station on here, and I didn't realize that. Hmm. Anyway, so this other unnamed radio station, we used to listen to it, and my dad would turn up the Cosmic Muffin reports, and I was like, you know, my dad's not a big believer in astrology. Why would he listen to this? And they were so darn entertaining that it was, you know, must-listen radio. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe there's still some of those reports floating out there on the Internet, floating around. Uh, send them to us, and, and, and we'll see if we can play them on the air. So uh, there we go. Uh, Matt Costa, why don't you tell us about the recent Bigfoot sightings? Okay. <clears throat> New photos of Bigfoot have been taken in Oklahoma. Over the last two weeks, there were three separate Bigfoot sightings in rural Atoka County, Oklahoma. And last week, the legend himself, Bigfoot, was supposedly spotted in the woods of Atoka by a 13-year-old, 13-year-old girl, Morgan Waitley, and her 12-year-old brother, Garrett, who came across something strange right across from a creek. She saw a creature who she, what she's never seen before. But the claims of the Wheatley kids were passed off as a child's imagination. That changed just days later when a woman in her 50s 
was taken to a hospital. She had reported that she saw a big hairy creature in her yard and had an anxiety attack. The final sighting included photos that some say is a mysterious creature itself. A local store owner, hoping to catch a glimpse of the elusive creature, set up game cameras around Clear Boggy Creek and captured four photos of what is believed to be a Bigfoot. These photos are posted on SpookySouthCoast.com under the message board in the Weekend Weird section, or you can go on KXII.com to check them out. And we'll let you guys judge. Yes, please uh, put what you think about those pictures uh, on the message board. Let us know what you think. I I actually told Matt uh, as we were coming in that I had seen the photos, and it looked to me like, remember that show Alf with the... He he wasn't a puppet. He was a real alien. Don't tell me he was a puppet, Monies. Anyway, so when they used to do that little wide shot of Alf running away... with the Yeah, Gordon Gordon Shumway. We should see if we can get him for the show. Definitely. That'd be another dream guest of mine. Sting? But, uh... uh Sting. Sting. That's Sting's real name, Gordon Shumway. No, it's he's Gordon Sumner. No, trust me, Gordon Sumner. Shumway. No, I'll, I'll debate you on this later. Anyway, but you'd see that wide shot of Alf running away in his tail and like the fat body that some people claim was a guy in a costume running away. That's like kind of what this Bigfoot looks like. So, uh, Matt, we'll get your opinion because you have had some Bigfoot, uh, some Bigfoot uh, research over the years. Yeah. So we'll have you uh, take a look at them and see what you think. And uh, speaking of research, one thing that you've researched for many years is the presence of UFOs. Now there's some pretty big-name astronauts claiming that they have seen UFOs. Why don't you tell everybody about that? All right. Uh, This is kind of old news to me, but the rest of the public might find it interesting. Uh, Astronauts had a close encounter. Uh, The first men to walk on the moon reported seeing a UFO, but uh, NASA covered up the incident. The revelation came as a result of a TV documentary that uh, aired uh, about the Apollo 11 mission in the UK. Astronaut Buzz Aldrin, the second man to walk on the moon's surface after Neil Armstrong, said NASA covered up their sighting and that the astronauts themselves took part in a cover-up, not openly discussing what they saw for fear of who might be listening. According to Aldrin, there was something out there, close enough to be observed, and what it, and what could it be? Now, obviously, the three of us weren't going to blurt out, hey, Houston, we've got something moving alongside of us and we don't know what it is. Can you Can you tell us what it is? We weren't about to do that because we knew that those transmissions would be heard by all sorts of people and somebody might have demanded we turn back because of aliens or whatever the reason might be. The documentary was also revealed that the astronauts had to repair the lunar module with a ballpoint pen after the historic landing in July 1969. It, in the cramped conditions, someone's bulky spacesuit had snapped off a circuit breaker essential for starting up the engines. To this day, Aldrin treasures the everyday object that saved their lives. He said, quote, I use a pen, one of several that we uh, had on board. It did not have a metal tip on the end, and we used it to push in the circuit breaker. So, uh, it's a little scary. <laughs> that, that's how they do their own self-repairs like that with a pen. I mean, you'd think they'd have a plan in place, but, uh, hey, it was hey, the early days like of... your bick, right? Well, you know, look, look at how it's working now, though. They're still having problems like that these days. Uh, 
which was at Discovery was the recent yeah. shuttle, and then they had some issues with uh, foam, foam falling off of that. So, and we won't bring up Challenger. Well, that goes without saying. But and now, of course, the space shuttle is on its way to retirement anyway. So they're going to move on to the next phase of space travel. Uh, speaking of moving on to the next phase, uh, we're running some tight on time here. Uh, we want to get to our guests, but uh, Matt Costa, what else do you have for us, uh, weird-wise? Uh, this is from ABC News. A team of Texas archaeologists believe they, they may have located the remains of Noah's Ark in Iran's Elbrus mountain range. The Bible Archaeology Search and Exploration Institute, or otherwise known as BASE, is a Christian archaeology organization dedicated to looking for biblical artifacts. The discovery of the Ark was made after an expedition in the mountains northwest of Turan. The Bible places the Ark in the mountains of Ararat, a mountain range theologists believe spans hundreds of miles, which the team says is consistent with their find in Iran. The Bible also describes the Ark's dimensions as being 300 cubits by 50 cubits, which is similar in size and scale to, to satellite photos that prove the presence of the Ark. The Base Institute hopes the physical evidence they brought back from Iran will hold the answer. Sam- samples are being examined at the labs in Texas and Florida. Though this would be a great find for, from a historical standpoint, base officials concede that there would be no way to conclusively prove that their findings are actually Noah's Ark. Noah's Arcade? Sorry, different Noah's Ark. <laughs> well, there you have it. That is the week and weird for this week. Uh, a couple stories we didn't get to, but we want to make you aware of. If you go to our message board, click on the week and weird section, there's a great story that was put up there by Tammy, who runs the New England Legends website. That's uh, freewebs.com slash New England Legends, about uh, some cemetery graves that are sliding down the hill right here in Massachusetts. So make sure you check that story out. And also, I haven't had a chance to post it up there, but I will later on. From USA Today, the top ten great places to go on a haunted hike. All these national parks and, and some of the haunted locations there. And, uh, and we will be right back after a brief break. On the other side, we will bring back in Dr. Ron Millione, the gizmo guy for TAPS. And uh, we will also talk with David Chastain of the Extrico Group about his plan to tie all of an investigator's equipment together into one uh, interface. So stay tuned. Uh, we'll be right back here on Spooky South Coast. Spooky South Coast, 508-996-0500, 508-2910-500, and on our message board at SpookySouthCoast.com under the live show chat board. Those are the ways to get in touch with us so that you can uh, share with us your thoughts, your theories, 
your opinions, your personal experiences, anything related to the paranormal. And uh, we have a great guest on the line with us tonight, Dr. Ron Millione. He is the gizmo guy for TAPS. And, uh, you know, he's, he, uh, he also said, you know, early in the show that he works for the Department of Defense as well. But well, that's, that's not as important as working for ghost hunters, designing the equipment that they use. And uh, we also have joining us on the line as well, David Chastain, who runs the Extrico Group, which, uh, you know, Extrico is to disentangle, free, extricate, clear up, or unravel. And that's exactly what he's trying to do when it comes to the paranormal. Uh, if you go to his website, it's extricogroup.com, E-X-T-R-I-C-O group.com, you can find some of the uh, articles that he's written, such as Baiting the Paranormal, uh, other articles on ethics when investigating the paranormal, which I think all paranormal investigators should read uh, prior to going out into the field for the first time because he, he really takes a, a very good look at some of the things that people do that would misrepresent the field, uh, such as trespassing, I mean, things like that. I mean, you're taking a, a big blow not to your own reputation when you do things like that, but to the reputation of all paranormal investigators because they're just going to categorize them all as thrill seekers. But uh, he looks at things from a scientific point of view, and uh, he has put together an article on the call for technology, which was recently mentioned on the TAPS Power Radio podcast, which if you haven't caught it yet, go to podcastalley.com, search for TAPS. Actually, it's in the top ten now. It's one of the most popular downloads on Podcast Alley now. And uh, you can find they have three episodes up, and uh, very entertaining. It's just Jay and Grant off the cuff talking about the paranormal. And so we have joining us now David Chastain. How are you doing, David? Hey, how you doing? All right, and Ron, you're still with us as well? Still here. How you uh, doing, Dave? All right. So, uh, Dave, you're on with us and with Ron as well. And, okay. And we wanted to talk to you a little bit about this idea that you have. Uh, we posted a link to it on the blog at our website, SpookySouthCoast.com. But why don't you explain to those uh, who haven't had a chance to read the article exactly what your idea was with tying in all this investigative equipment? Well, I kind of... Um to give you a little background, I'm an IT manager uh, for a Fortune 500 company, and um, I get to see software every day in which um, there are a lot of interfaces and tie-ins from different pieces of equipment and uh, kind of a modularized approach. And uh, it kind of gave me the idea that you know we all have these devices, whether it be video or audio or EMF or uh, whatever type of sensor that you have, um, and we're, which we're kind of walking around doing hand sweeps which coincidentally, that's what, exactly what I was doing when you called. I'm on an investigation right now. <laughs> where, about, but, where, where are you investigating? I'm in Roswell, Georgia. Um, it's a site that's on uh, the historic register down here, um, and the folks here were kind enough to uh, let the team, one of the teams that I work with come in and investigate. Um, it's actually called Barrington Hall, and uh very nice place. There's a number of places like that here, but we just happen to be in here today. Well, as always, if anything happens, feel free to let us know. Uh, you know, oh, sure. Interrupt the discussion just to say what's going on. So, Well, I'm, I'd step outside so that they could continue without hearing me <laughs> blabbing in the background. <laughs> so, but um, the idea that I had was that you know we have all of these devices, the audio, video, and whatnot, and we use them independently. Um, you know, we might have different types of documentation where the audio may be, uh, you know, digital, or we may have videotape or, you know, digital video. And um, some people are lucky enough to have uh, the different types of meters and sensors that might actually uh, log the activity to some sort of a, a flat file or, you know, somewhere in memory or something like that. But there's no way to, that I, you know, currently that you can 
use all those, de- those devices at the same time and then correlate them on a single interface, on a single screen. So what about videoing each of the readouts? Putting all of the materials, all of the detectors together? Right. All, all focused with one, uh, like, video camera recording all of them simultaneously. I mean, that'll document it, but it's not, it wouldn't be as easy as, as what uh, David's suggesting. Uh, this is uh, well, easy, easy in use. I mean, maybe not in creation. I only suggest this because that's what I've had to do. In the well, past. exactly, but you know, and that is you know an effective way to get it done. But hopefully, if if David's program could take hold, that I would mean, be wonderful. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Basically, I mean, the idea is that you know what you're going for is corroboration. You know, you want two or three of your devices to show activity at the same time, and have like one little slide that you can go back and forth with and you know, kind of loop it or play it back or whatever, and you can see the meter jump, you can see the video, you know, something manifest there. Maybe you have an audio going at the same time. And they're all trained on the same area. Now, we're talking and about hardwiring everything, though, right? It would have to be hardwired, I would think. Uh, you, you could wireless. Uh, you could do a wireless solution without the hardwire um, on, the, on those systems. Um, you know, I mean, you could do 2.4 gigahertz, which is the ISM band. Um, to do that, so the hardwire is not really a, a real challenge. But no, Dave, you got a good point on that. Um, and uh, I already got something accomplished between um, that, that kind of that concept, but uh, using a Geiger counter and, and a just developing, um, just finishing on a prototype. But EMF storage system. I have an EMF detector that's actual live storage, right? And then I could, you could later this. Uh, take the data. I could uh, throw it out into a um, graphical program and, mm-hmm. uh, and plot it with timestamp in real time, exactly what the uh, uh, the electromagnetic footprints were uh, through the timestamp uh, through collection points. But right. there is um, there's actually an application too. There's actually an application on the military side that uh, I, I'm working on. Um, that takes multiple senses, and we have uh, some uh, some algorithms in there that we collaborate and collectively throws it to one uh, user interface on a military level. Where that um, to get real specific, but one is uh, one is uh, a gas-related, in other words, gas sensor system. Another one is uh, unattended ground system. In other words, if you're getting close to the sensor. Uh, within a certain distance, it's going to detect what type of vehicle activity it is, and it, and it comes to one like kind of um, uh, almost like you know network management system. Since you're an IT right. guy, uh, uh, using SNMP protocol and stuff, you know, so, so certain traps will trigger if if the threshold is overtaken, you know, from in other words, being close to that sensor. But right. um, to make it to make it all, I think I, I think what's a good term is a UP. The uh, unified paranormal theory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I think we could probably pull it off, Dave. I um I say I got I got a Geiger Geiger counter that could collectively send it to to a data logger in real time. I got the EMF detector just finishing that up, which does that, and I'm trying to merge the two into one view. Which uh, it's got it's got some bugs in the program, but anything else in addition between audio and video and stuff, I think we could really do it. Um, just got to kind of figure out is um, probably what kind of database array that we'll that you want to agree upon. In other words, 
uh, uh, send all this stuff to a database, all these, uh, you know, uh, inputs, and then massage it, and then um, set some triggers on it. You know, so in other words, uh, some trigger, like uh, if an audio goes over a certain, uh, you know, um, frequency change, uh, give us an alert, or video and stuff. But it can't be, probably can't be done. Uh, I mean, we got, we got, there's enough, there's enough module technology to, just to glue it together is probably what we're looking for. Um, the only thing is we need, just need is, uh, some kind of capital for R&D to do that. But I think we, we got someone out there who wants to throw a little R&D money towards yeah. software development. Um, it's always, great. always the bottom line, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. how much, how much capital are we talking here? Uh, I, I don't know, but I mean, um, I'll give you an example. Uh, in the, in, on this military prototype system, it's about uh, about a half a million dollars of software development. Oh, oh never mind. Uh. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, oh, well, that's because it's uh, it's it, 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 it involves um, uh, an array of different people and their time and and some of the licenses because some of the com- some of the commercial licenses of these some of these products are really expensive. Um, right. So, in other words, if we're using like uh, you know Microsoft SQL database as compared to Oracle, if we're going from there, yeah. But you need some kind of database, so engine. So depending on which which one we want to use, uh, but for development, you know, usually they'll they'll give us uh, uh, almost limit. Like Oracle's really good; they'll, they really won't charge unless you start selling it. Yeah, you so know? marketing it, then that's yeah, marketing you it. But um, like, for yeah, as example, long as you're using a relational database, you can probably kind of. The idea might be good to be able to switch in between them because, you, like you said, you use Oracle or SQL Server, but yeah. at the same time you can go into MySQL, you know, which is you know open yeah, source. Yeah, which is everywhere. Which, which I, I used in the past in quite a bit of some applications that we were doing. Yeah, MySQL and it works pretty good. It's a pretty is there a really good engine on that, and it yeah, takes you know the uh, SQL, the um, the uh, SQL uh, statements there are uh, you know, directly compatible exactly. Right. Um, but and yeah, I, I think that, and I that, think that, that database is the key because you know that's where you're going to get your time synchronization from. You know, yep, each, it's writing a record each time, and you know it's got a time and a date on it. And whether you're you know when your devices are set to capture every three seconds, one another one every second. You know, as long as you can match them up later in the database and it's written, then uh, you should be able to corroborate. That's right. And like the most tool I saw, like most of the guys with the EMF detector, I said there's no data logging at all. It's gone. It's just right based on you know. You know, like, say, for example, Brian, you know, 5.6, 4.2. I mean, you ask him 20 minutes later, it's, or I'm, I'm not blaming, I'm, I'm not really trying to pick on Brian H. Everybody does, he, though. Of course, it's half. So, I mean, even, even Jay or Gray, anybody, you know, any of, the, any of the guys out there, I mean, some of the other guys, it's, um, you, you just take it, um, you're going to kind of, I think, uh, yeah, we did have something in this corner, but, you, you know, you, you just don't have a, the exact timestamp. So what I did yeah. is I, I, I modified a system where it, it, it'll do 2,000 collection points. You don't even have to subconsciously even think of where, you know, it, it, and you just throw it to a plot, and, mm-hmm. it, and, and it plots down three dimensions, like a kind of like almost a, like an Excel spreadsheet stuff in, you know, the uh, graph format, and it'll tell you exactly highs and lows, uh, average, uh, the peak of the milligauss, um, if if it was you know if it was to 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 the rail in other words kind of really high yeah, in this case the guy had some like his 120 uh, uh, his 101 amps 100 amp system a 200 amp system was like basically totally not to code to electric code it's just leaking like crazy you know that blows mm-hmm. the scale um, 
and, 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 and it, you know, it's got a couple little bugs in it, just like anything else, so everything else out there, but... Um, but, but you think that this can be pulled off? This interface can yeah, be created? I mean, yeah. Like I said, the EMF detector, I finally got where it could pull the data off it now, where it's just strictly everything else. I mean, stuff out there right now with the with the EMF side, you really can't collect anything. And, like, well, what do you, you know, how, so I try to solve that problem. But you got other, you know, you got people with, you know, a lot of um, temperature. You know, with the handheld portable temperature probes are going out there with the infrared and bing, again, you know, readings, you know, they're trying to get, um, oh, we got a we got a cold spell right here, so we got a possible entity. But um, how do we get that data back if the if that data itself there's no local storage? So right. we got to if we could add some local storage to that, and then um, maybe we could put you know I mean you might be able to adapt to some like a little bit wireless a wireless system on that to that portable infrared and send that thing back in real time, but. I just think uh, I think the first step, even like David was saying, which is right on the money, is uh, if we could these other devices that I call just static and, and it's just it doesn't hold any storage. Uh, get them to that next step of storing the data. Now pull everything back to a database, massage the data, then bring it up and and, and then have it collaborate all at one time. Um, I think it's just a matter of. Um, of, of getting storage capabilities in these other uh, devices. Um, that's, you know, that's the matter of fact, yeah, I was, I'm that's sorry. Kind of what I was thinking, too. I mean, whether you're using a, uh, a PCMCI card or right. um, a flash card or, you know, whatever it is that you want to throw in there, you could have it being a removable disk or you can, you know, kind of like some of the cameras today where you, you just connect a firewire cable after you're finished. That's right. Just transfer the data. Devices on time and date before you start, and then when you finish, it ought to be calibrated time and date too. So it's a synchronization rather than real time, and that kind of solves some of the you know the wired or the hardwired problems that have been brought up. So maybe we took a big step here tonight in getting this uh, system together. You think? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, if you get the uh, if you get like the uh, I call the Far East guys to say, look, you know, with your infrared stuff is great at sixty bucks or seventy bucks, mm -hmm. but I said, you know, can you make an option for us, you know, for us? There might be 1,000 paranormal, 10,000 paranormal researchers out there. We'll buy it if we could add, you know, an SD stick to it. In other words, we mm -hmm. would add, a, you know, 250 little megabyte uh, uh, card in there, and now we could store our temperature stuff, um, you know, uh, readings as we're going around, you know, down Waverly Hills or someplace. Um, great place. <laughs> yeah, right? And then, then I'm plugging that place, but I'm just, you know, it's just a great place. It's so, such an active place. I but, just um, went there last month and got some great footage. Right? Yeah. Great you know, stuff. I, th I think we get enough of guys like us together, and we say, listen, Mr. Taiwan or whatever, say, you know, I know you guys are great on these, you know, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to get into the infrared or any of this thermometer technology and build it for you know in the in, in the basement. Let's say say the tap space or even my basement. It's just you know the, those guys are those guys already done it and it's really. I'm just taking some certain stuff that you know, adding some more value add to it if I can if I'm capable of doing it. But those guys are already you know they they got it modular. You know it's it's all solid state. You know the manufacturing cost is so so cheap. But if we got together and say, look, can you add this option maybe for this thing, 10, 15 bucks, you could throw this little memory card in there. 
where uh, there's another application to you, thermometers that are, you know, they just think like, well, you know, you got a guy out there who wants to do a one little measurement on, uh, you know, checking the temperature on, uh, you know, maybe he's a, a HVAC inspector or something. But uh, and even can say, look, if he's an inspector and he's going to 40 houses in a day, now he could store everything in that one thermometer kit, you know, right. and and then look at it later on. You go, that Mr. Smith's house, Mr. Jones' house, you know, and log it that way, and then we could just transfer it to the paranormal side of it. I've, I've actually seen a, a small collection of the handheld devices that we're talking about that are, you know, none of this stuff is being built for the paranormal investigation. It's all have it all has traditional uses somewhere in some other industry. And uh, I've seen some of the ones that you're kind of referring to where they have the local storage on there, the local memory, and then they can kind of feed it off to a PC later. But, you know, like we were saying before, like you said, especially, um, that stuff ends up being in the uh, triple digits and, you know, quadruple digits and things like that, and that's kind of out of the reach of the standard paranormal investigator. I happen to have a couple of those uh, multiple point recording thermometer uh, thermocouples. Mm-hmm. That, that download oh, okay. onto them, yeah. Well, yep. the laboratory I work in, we use them for calibrating large uh, ovens and uh, incubators and stuff like that. They sample about uh, once every second, hold about twelve hours worth of recording on twelve. That's hardwired inputs. too, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, they're hardwired. Yeah, and what's the price? Uh, yeah, they're <laughs> roughly about fifteen grand. Can you swipe uh, one you or two? Can you just maybe put them in your pocket on the way home? No? Uh, no. Okay, yeah, you don't want to do that anyway. So, uh, But, no, it definitely sounds like, uh, you know, we're making headway in this, and anybody that's listening uh, to the show, uh, you know, and if you want to help put up some capital or, or maybe you have some ideas, uh, you know, you can go to David's website. The, uh, the Is it Extrico Group, David? Is that how you say it, or Extrico Group? I've got to make a confession. I'm not a Latin expert, but <laughs> I actually went to a Latin How do you, how do you pronounce it? I say Extraco. All right, so the ExtracoGroup.com. Yeah, yeah Extraco. That's right, yep. And we have yeah. uh, we have links up on our site, SpookySouthCoast.com, and uh, we got to get you guys together. I'll uh, I'll share your information with one another and get it no, out there. No, that'd be great, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, Dave, you got a great, you know, it's, it's a great vision there. And you know what? I mean, the vision is always, we can we can make it make it practical, make it reality. It's just, uh, you know, we get together, and then we get some of these manufacturers to collaborate and say, look, you know, there's right. another avenue of, of stuff out there that you, you need to channel to. There's a lot of people in the, you know, paranormal world that uh, if you could add these options, uh, that'd be great. Plus, you could also, you know, uh, get it to the, maybe the commercial side's lacking some of this stuff uh, that you're not thinking about. So, uh, yeah, I mean, um, what they say, strength in numbers so the more of us get together and go, hey, we need this out there to your, you know, your tool that you sell. Maybe they'll 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 work with us. You know, then we could figure out the... Uh, the software and the collaboration and of uh, one uh, a unified paranormal uh, theory <laughs> you know, on that Windows XP. That I'm giving Gates any heads up on it, but yeah. uh, hey, he's willing to listen. I'm sure. Uh, so, uh, so what do you, what do you think, David? Do you think uh, was this what you're expecting to have happened? Did you think you're going to get closer to to making this a reality tonight, or? Um, yeah, sure. I, you know, I, I first wrote that article back in May or so, and then. It got picked up on ParanormalNews.com, and, you know, I posted it on a couple of boards I go to. And, you know, since that time, um, you know, I've probably been contacted by 15 or 20 people in different technology fields. Um, and they've all been, you know, they've tried to be really helpful. We usually run into the money thing. Um, and I think a lot of people look at that screenshot that I, you know, that dummy uh, screen that I set up there and I did with Visual Basic, I think six or something like that. 
Yeah, no, um, that's great. And they, yeah. and, and they think that's a you know that's oh, it's a huge bite. Well, you don't you know you don't go and try to build the thing all at once. You know, you, you, you first you work on one device. You, you know, you work with an API and work on a device, and you keep adding to it. You know. So I wouldn't be scared off by the, you know, how large it looks. Or you know, people who do programming know what I'm talking about. That's a lot of code, you know. Right. Especially if you're going to attach it to a case file or something like that, and you know, synchronize all these things together. So, um, but there's a local guy here that, you know, we've been we've been playing tag, trying to get back in touch with each other, and he's shown me a little bit of what he's working on. I got contacted by somebody from England who has uh, a system he's already selling. It's like a junior version of what you know my dream is, or whatever, you know. So. Um, you know, I might can. I mean, if you guys are interested, I can send you some of those, uh, some of those suggestions and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, the big thing that I'm looking for. Yeah, is I mean, we, we could, uh, you could try to evolve it. You know, um, exactly. Um, yeah, the idea, you know. idea is just to get everybody talking. You know, just to get everybody working together because nobody's yeah. going to do this by themselves. And you once know? you get everybody talking about it, and the the functionality starts to come into play, I think right. you'll find the money is going to follow it pretty close right behind. Yeah, oh, sure. We hope. Yeah, you want, it's a whole thing. You want one whole dashboard of mm-hmm. all your, you know, all your sensing devices out there that you got one dashboard and, and, and then you got the, this one algorithm that we're going to build and say, hey, you know, we got the temperature, the temperature is going down. You know, we got some, some strange changes on infrared. Uh, we got EMF activity increasing in, you know, in amplitude, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, it says, Man, it's Casper. He's right there. You know, yeah, it's exactly. And, and it'll eliminate a lot of the uh, supposed human error too. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That exactly. Huge, huge on the debunk side. So you know, if you've only got one sensor showing anything. You can kind of attribute it to something natural, but uh, or man-made. But you know, when you got four or five sensors showing weird activity, that kind of you know, where there's smoke, yeah. there's fire. You know. But yeah. that that that's exactly. You got four or five sensors on the dashboard, and they're all pointing to you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paranormal or unknown, then you could use that expression, dude. You better run. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, uh, we'd like for you to keep That's us great. up to date on this. Uh, we'll let you get back to your investigation, uh, sure, and, and please let us know how that goes as well. I mean, uh, you have my email, and, and and feel free to you post it on our board already, and feel free to just keep us up to date with what's going on, and uh, we'll follow up on this in the future. We'll have you back when you're not otherwise engaged, and uh, we'll we'll kick this around and some other topics as well. Okay, can I give one quick little plug? Sure, absolutely. I'm out here with a team called uh, Historic Ghost Watch, and their URL is historicghost.com. Um, so if you were looking for the results from this investigation, you'd want to hit their website, and they've got them posted there. It'll probably be a couple of weeks before we see anything. So We'll, we'll put a link up on our site uh, tomorrow with the, with the show so that everybody can access that and, and keep up with what's going on there. Sounds great. All right, David. Thank you very much. That's yeah, Steve, thanks, Dave. David great, uh, Chastain. Uh, it's a pleasure talking to you, Dave. And uh, we'll definitely be in touch. To great idea and concept, and uh, hopefully we could, you know, we could grow grow this thing to uh, you know to a product. It'd, it'd be my pleasure. All right, thank you very much. Great, thanks, Dave. Right. David thanks. Chastain of the Extraco Group, extracogroup.com. And uh, we're going to take a couple minutes, quick break, our final break of the program. On the other side, the last 10 minutes or so, we're going to talk to Dr. Ron Million about some of the other projects he has going on. They're not directly related to ghost hunting, but let me tell you, this is some breakthrough stuff, so stay tuned. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back.
darkness enters in the air. The funk of 40,000 years and grisly goons from every tomb are closing in to seal your doom. And though you fight to stay alive, your body starts to shiver. For no immortal can resist the evil of the thriller. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here. Matt Costa. Producer extraordinaire. It's like the spirit of Vincent Price is here with us. And, of course, science advisor Matt Moniz is along. We are having a fascinating discussion about the science of ghost hunting. Uh, we were just joined by David Chastain of the extracogroup.com with his uh, idea for a interface uh, coupling all the paranormal investigators' equipment into one interface uh, to make it more user-friendly and to make it more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, more in sync. Uh, so that it's a lot easier if the computer is just tying all this stuff together instead of everybody with different equipment having to do it all at once. And uh, also, real quick, before we get, jump back into the discussion, Matt Costa, you attended the Capers Open meeting last night on UFOs conducted by Keith Kessner. Uh, what did you think of that presentation? I thought it was pretty good. It, it was a little different than the usual Capers meetings. It was more interactive. And did you find the audience was was willing to participate? Oh yeah, there was a lot more. Um, there was a lot more. He, there was handouts, and we actually had to, uh, or we didn't have to, but it was encouraged to draw what we thought was a gray alien. What we thought the grays, yeah, the, the grays in particular. And did you find that there was a lot of similarity uh, in the design? Generally, they everybody had the same pretty much uh, drawing. The, uh, the oblong head, the almond-shaped Characteristics, eyes. I guess. Do you think that's because uh, of what the the media has portrayed these as looking like? Uh, what we've heard in other stories and other reports and films? And Yeah, it's possible. I don't know. So anybody there actually claimed to have been abducted? Nobody abducted. Uh, there were a few people who actually saw UFOs. One in actually in New Bedford. I'm not sure what street, but... Was it? Uh, uh, I think it's a County Street. Recently, or or in the past? Uh, a couple months ago. Really? Yeah. Well, uh, of course, if anybody else has experienced UFO phenomena, do us a favor. Go on our message board at SpookySouthCoast.com under uh, your you know, share your story. Uh, tell us your story. You can put your UFO encounters in there, and we will make sure we get them on to to Keith Kessner, who is the ufologist for Capers. We'll get them out to Chris Pittman, who is the Massachusetts representative of MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. Uh, we're we're pretty, pretty tied into this community, and of course, we can get it out to, to Bud Hopkins as well. Uh, so just feel free to send it along to us. So uh, in these final few minutes here, Ron, uh, let's, let's bring Ron back up. In these final few minutes, why don't you tell us about some of these other projects you have going on? I know we only have about six minutes or so to talk okay. about anti-gravity machines, uh, dimensional gateways, and recreating the Philadelphia experiments. <laughs> hey, guys. Thanks. Thanks for uh, having me back again. And, uh, yeah, you, got, you guys said two four from the, uh, you know, from Exeter, New Hampshire, that had a huge UFO stuff back in the, uh, I think, this early seventies or sixties or something, but um, well, isn't that's where Betty and Barney Hill were from? Yeah, right? yeah, Betty Barney Hill. What a classic! That that's one thing that always intrigued me for years was that. Um, but uh, I developed a magnometer, a kind of a little more upper grade level for UFO detection. But 
Uh, we'll talk about that maybe on another show. And I got uh, I'm just finishing up a prototype on that, and I, I want to try to test it out. So uh, well, maybe we'll have to send you guys the prototype, and you could throw it out in the field. That would be excellent. We're so we're already going to mark you down uh, for a future appearance on the science of UFO hunting. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And um, uh, trying to get this gizmo out. Um, it might work for ghost detection, but more concentrated to these uh, UFO stuff. Um, all right, so. The, 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 the Philadelphia experiment. That's, that's very interesting. Uh, why don't you just real quickly give everybody a, a rundown of what it was? We, you know, we're up against the clock here. We've got about three or four minutes. Um, I teamed up with the, the world famous crazy guy John H- Kenneth Hutchison, uh, who did the Hutchison effect. And um, John and I have uh, been talking over a year some some serious stuff. And um, between myself and him, he's got enough. Uh, Enough of the electronics and uh, kind of to collaborate together to not only levitate, but actually we could we call this. We're going to try to do is do a jellification. We call it of a model of the Philadelphia experiment. This for the audience out there. This was 1943. Uh, it was an escort ship. The Navy called the DE-173 was the actual designation of the ship, known as the USS Elridge. And its main uh, objective was to reduce the magnetic footprint of the ship. Every vessel out there has a magnetic footprint. At the peak of World War II, 1943, the Germans had an ingenious device of these uh, mines. They were just strategically put out there. You got some uh, Navy ship going out there with a tremendous amount of electronics. You got, you know, miles and miles of electronic cable. Throws out this magnetic, you know, kind of squawking out there of a field, goes across the mine, and then the, the magnetic uh, footprint of the ship causes the mine to explode. There you go. There goes the ship. We lose all that assets, human lives, and all that fracticide stuff. So to make a long story short, what we're trying to do is um, make a ship invisible. When I'm saying invisible, I'm saying invisible to X-ray. When I say X-ray, the X-band radar, and also trying to reduce or degauss the magnetic footprint of a vessel. So uh, they had this one ship, this DE-173. They put uh, quite a bit of high-power generators on it. They put these uh, coils, one on the stern, one on the bow, that's the front and the back of the ship, like a huge electromagnet, put all these wires, like kind of electromagnet cable all the way around the ship, underneath the structure, that is, in the, in the hull. And then when they fire it up, what they want to do is reduce the magnetic footprint by creating a magnetic bubble. But the only problem was that the um, when you have so much electromagnetic field going on, you, have, you produce a high amounts of hydrogen. The hydrogen broke down to free radicals, and when you get a free radical, in other words, a breakdown of that hydrogen atom, with, with sodium and chlorine, because you got that salt water, it created a green phosphorus fog effect. And when you have such high um, electromagnetic field, your skin, if you're actually involved in that umbrella of that field, your skin could start to burn. And that's what happened to a, a bunch of people on the ship. They actually, the skin started to burn. And when you, when you touch the structure of the ship, uh, you become basically um, the structure, the molecular structure starts to change. Because now you're grounding yourself because you're actually in a hot field. You're trying to then you're grounding yourself to a metal structure, and also your skin is, is burning from the RF fields. 
again, this was uncalculated and unpredicted from their um, uh, theoretical side, <clears throat> people were becoming part structure of the ship. That really because of teleportation, because of RF burns. Now, John and I are going to reproduce that to an effect of, on a model ship, trying to get the electromagnetic bubble intensified enough uh, and, and we could see if we could change the, um, uh, the structure of the ship as far as its, its uh, response to X-band radar. 1943, X-band radar was the primary radar of most of the, uh, between the U.S. and, of course, its enemies besides the Allies. What they were trying to do also is they're trying to shift the obs observational um, visibility, which it's called the redshift. So if I take an object, they try to <clears throat> produce this kind of field on it, and you look at it on a visible spectrum, it's like shifted 60 degrees. In other words, let's say 60 degrees shifted, and you think, oh, the object's over here on the southeast, but it's actually physically located in the south. Ron, so then I, you shoot I, your I hate, weapons to the southeast. Sorry, I hate I hate to cut you off. Uh, we'll we'll definitely have to have you back in the future to talk about this. We're just up against the clock here for the for the CBS News. You got it. But uh, we'd like, glad to be back. We'd like to thank you, and of course, uh, anybody that wants to check out more information, global-communications-networks.com, and we have a link on our site. Uh, and we want you all to stay spectacular. See you next week, everybody. Take care. Thanks, guys. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, tomorrow.